Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Years ago, many, many years ago, probably more than I care to admit, I saw a Three Stooges skit. Tell you how old I am, right? The Three Stooges were playing at being carpenters, if you will. A wealthy woman had employed them to come and work in her home. She had a table that wobbled ever so slightly. She wanted the Stooges to fix the table. She reminded them that the table was a priceless heirloom and had come over to her family over from the Mayflower, and so that they had better be careful. So Larry carried in the toolbox, and Mo started giving orders, and Curly gazed the ruler to measure up the table, and of course at this point just all kinds of mayhem breaks loose. They're banging into each other and bumping into each other and knocking each other over and slapping and hitting people with things and poking each other in the eyes and just making the most ridiculous of sounds the entire way they're going through this. You know, stooge stuff. Well, they concluded that the table was wobbly because one of the legs was shorter than the other three. So in order to fix this, we will just shore off the other three legs. And of course, Larry shortened a leg, and then Mo turned around, and he shortened the same leg, and then they shortened another leg, and it shortened and shortened and shortened. But don't worry about it. They did indeed finally get the table to be level and back. It was six inches tall, but it didn't wobble anymore. The lady of the house picked up a hammer and chased it out of the room. We all have wobbly tables. Pretty much every church in America has got a wobbly table. There's probably not a fellowship hall in America that doesn't have a folded up bulletin underneath one of those tables stuck there someplace trying to, to keep this up. I know we have wobbly tables in our choir room. I've put some of those bulletins there myself. Let's keep those wobbly tables in mind a little bit as we look at our gospel lesson for today. A lawyer, a professional in the law of God, a Sadducee we assume, an expert in Jewish law, comes to Jesus and he asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what is my part, what is my share in the life that God has given to our community? What must I do to be fully alive? What must I do to be in communion with God? You can ask this question a hundred different ways depending on what it is that you want out of the answer. In Jesus' day, many Jewish men wore phylacteries. Phylacteries were leather bracelets and headbands. They would have little boxes on top of them. And into these phylacteries these, that they would wear all over their body, they would take little bitty tiny pieces of scripture and stick them in their little phylacteries, the little box that they wore on the top of their head. And then they would repeat those phrases, those verses, several times a day, sometimes as many three to four or five times a day. It's interesting when this man asks what he must do to, to, to uh, inherit eternal life. Jesus may very well have pointed to this man's phylactery on the top of his head and said, what do you, what's the law say? What, what do you say? What, what's, what's written right there that you carry around on your forehead day after day? What is your mantra? One of their very popular mantras is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, the great Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. The faithful would re repeat this sign, this, this verse, over and over and over again. Maybe as much as three or four times a day. Jesus points and says, what's there? The lawyer responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he adds to it all of your mind and just for good nature, just for good point. He, he also adds in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, which we already read. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember the goal of the table is to have all the four legs the same length so that it's stable. Right, so that you can use it. You can put things on the table, and apparently as long as you don't have a cat, the stuff on the table, or a child for that matter, the stuff on the table ought to stay on the table. It doesn't wobble, and so things don't roll off. The goal of God's people is to love Him, but that God's love can also be reflected to the world through us. That's part of what Jesus is doing, is restoring the image of God in us. And granted, it is not perfect. Our, our tables all wobble, don't get me wrong. But trying to keep them as, as unwobbly as we can. To lead a full life, to lead a, a balanced life with no wobbling. Love can create stability. A balanced life. A life that's, that's fully alive. And the lawyer's response of which Jesus seems to approve. He's quoting scripture. He's not doing it right, but he is quoting scripture. We have four legs. Those four legs need to be balanced. Heart, soul, strength, mind. Some people may disagree with this. It's fine, I don't mind. But people seem to have four sides to them. Right? We have emotions. Well, some of us have emotions. Some of us don't. We have emotions. We have a soul. We have a faith life. We have a physicality. We have a strength. We have a body that's physical. And we have a mind. We have an intellect. Emotion, spirit, physicality, intellect, mind, a balanced life. People seek to grow in all four areas of these. To make these four areas strong. And once these four areas are strong, they lead to a balanced life. It's useful. You can put things on it and they don't fall off. To live fully alive, people are able to use themselves, to be used by God, to be of use to everybody around them. If one leg is shortchanged, that doesn't mean that the table is useless. It's not mean it's, it, it, it's, it's never going to work. It's, it's just more difficult, I guess. It wobbles. When our life gets out of balance, it wobbles. The more out of balance it is, the more wobbly it is, the harder it is to have dinner. We fail to love God when we hold ourselves back from a balanced life. We fail our neighbor when we hold ourselves back from their life. We fail the strangers in our society when we, we hold ourselves back from, from the issues that, that they have, the, the people that God has put in our path. We hold back from God, we hold back from our neighbor, we, we shorten our legs. Before you know it, you end up living a life that looks a bit like the Three Stooges. It is horribly shortened and restricted and narrowed beyond usefulness. <clears throat> There's nothing to do with it anymore. 
When we hold back, we find ourselves fighting with God. We can hear a similar antagonism from our young lawyer. In his next question, just who is my neighbor, though? Tell me exactly who you're talking about, Jesus. He wants Jesus to, to draw a line for him around who was on the inside and who are on the outside. Of course, the people on the inside you have to care about, but the people on the outside, who, who's far enough away that, that I don't have to worry about anything. In response, Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan has innumerable applications. You, you've heard this, you've heard sermons on this, I don't know how many times in your life, 50 probably. All of them being just a little different. One of those shows that God's way of, of living a, a balanced life is to expand our vision, not to restrict it, to open our lives, to not to close them off. Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to the lawyer's question. It's important to remember that this is a response to the lawyer's question. This isn't something that Jesus sort of pulled out and said that this is descriptive of life. This is, this is, this is not proscriptive, it's descriptive. You can live this way if you choose, young lawyer. The parable teaches what it really means to be alive. To have a share in God's work. In this story, there are three people that are half dead. Their lives are out of balance. It's the Samaritan who is presented as the person who is fully alive. It's the Samaritan is the one who is, who is presented as, as having a full table. The parable begins with an all too familiar way. Someone is riding down the Jericho road. He is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. The road to Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles long. It is isolated. It is rocky. It is filled with twists and turns and waddles. It's, it's basically a bad land. Great for robbers. Lots of places to hide. The man who has jumped has multiple wounds, suggesting that he has tried to defend himself but was unable to do so. He is left at the side of the road, physically half dead, bereft of all of his supplies. And along came a priest and a Levite. Now Jesus makes it crystal clear that the priest comes first and the priest did indeed see the man. It's not like he was walking by and just went, oh, I, I missed him. Right? He sees him. And, and you've heard it before that priests were not allowed to touch corpses and that maybe this is why he had gone around the man because he was afraid. If he touched the corpse, the corpse would make him Levitically would make him unclean. The problem is the man didn't even try to see if the man was dead or not. I mean, he could have poked him with a stick or something to see if he was alive. He, he doesn't even do that. He just walks around as far away from this guy as he can get, lest he lash out and, and help. The priest is also half dead. His heart is dead. He has no compassion. One might argue that his faith life might be dead as well. He is physically well. Physically he is fine, but he is only thinking about himself. He is out of balance. He has turned his back on the great need of somebody in the road. After the priest comes by, a Levite comes by. Priests come from the family of Aaron. Aaron is of the tribe of Levi, which means that 
all of the priests were Levites, but not all of the Levites are priests. The Levite performs the subordinate services associated with the public worship. They're musicians, gatekeepers, guardians, temple officials, judges, craftsmen, whatever they need, they can find in the tribe of Leviticus. Now, the Levite has not got the restriction about the touching of corpses. They're the people that you pay to touch the corpses because the priest cannot do it. It doesn't mean anything for him. He does the same thing that the priest does. He sees a guy lying broken and bent and busted up on the side of the road. He goes as far around him as he can to stay out of the way. What is this to me? Again, Jesus makes it crystal clear that the Levite does indeed see the man. He could have helped. He just doesn't want to. He didn't. He didn't want to. The Levite is also half dead. His heart is dead towards the, the victim lying there in the ditch. He's clearly physically alive, but mentally he's thinking only about himself. He too is out of balance. He too has turned himself, turned his back to somebody who was in great need. Finally, a Samaritan comes by. In the Greek text, the Samaritan word is used the absolute first in the sentence, highlighting the importance of it. This Samaritan, remember the Samaritan, nobody liked the Samaritan. I use a number of words, a number of people from a number of areas. The Samaritan comes by. The Samaritan here, hereby is, is fully alive. He loves his neighbor with all of his heart and all of his soul, with all of his strength, with all of his mind. And when push comes to shove, he sees the half-dead man and he has compassion. That compassion is turned into action. It doesn't say anything about his faith. The Samaritans were every bit as motivated by their religion as the Jews were. He employs the strength to help the man. He puts him on his own animal. And then walks as far as it, it takes him to get to the nearest of end, placing himself in greater jeopardy because he has now slowed himself down. The Samaritan is in great need, and he has provided great need. He uses his wits by pouring wine and oil, oil and wine to disinfect the wounds, oil to soothe them, tear strips of his own cloth to bind up the man's wound. He got the injured man to the, to the inn. He paid for his stay, took care of him for a day, and gave the innkeeper two denarii, that's two days' wages, in order to take care of him at $15 an hour for 16 hours of work. It's about 250 bucks, pre-tax. He just gives it to the man and says, here, take care of this guy. And then furthermore, he binds himself under the further debts of this man, of whom he does not know. If you need to spend anything else on this man, when I come back by here next, I will pay you what he owes you. He provided all the help the wounded man needed. He loved him as he would hope that somebody would have loved him. Now see, the model of the Good Samaritan presents us with a picture of someone who is fully alive. Who has inherited a share of the work of God. In this parable, it not only holds up an idea, but it accuses us. This is sometimes why we don't like this parable. Because it accuses us of who we are. Of what we look like. We're wobbly. We're out of balance. Half dead somehow. Do we put our hearts into loving God and our neighbor? How much do we really care about our own spiritual life? 
How much of time do we invest in? How about the spiritual life of our neighbors? Do we really care what they're doing and what they're up to? Do we take care of ourselves? Do we take care of our bodies? Do we take care of our physicality? Do we attend to the physical needs of ourselves? Do we attend to the physical needs of those who are around us, who are beat up and left half dead in this world? Do we seek to grow mentally? Do we use our wits about us? Or do we use our wits to avoid the needs of others and further imperial entanglements, as we might say? We're all half dead. We lead wobbly lives. And when we lead wobbly lives, when we recognize our half-deadness, Christ, Christ then becomes the ideal neighbor for us. Christ is the ideal neighbor that we need. Christ becomes our good Samaritan. He put everything he had into bringing God's life to us and for us. I mean, Jesus really puts his heart into it. Jesus weeps that people don't understand the gospel that he is trying to preach unto them and that they have closed themselves off and hardened their hearts. He is determined to save us. Jesus puts his face, he turns his face into Jerusalem and walks ever so solemnly towards that day. He sets his face towards the cross. He goes towards it on purpose. Jesus is deeply spiritual, awfully, often found in prayer. He himself is intimately connected unto God's life for us. Jesus is an intelligent man, often surprises people. I mean, throughout the gospel, Jesus is always surprising people with his answers. They're like, what is this? This carpenter, right? This carpenter has such, such intellect. He's always asking more questions. Almost never begins things. He almost always is asked his opinion. And then he goes out of his way to ask more questions. What is it that you really want me to answer? What is your real question? He does this all of the time in giving more information. Jesus is physically involved with people. He's very much concerned with their needs. He died because we so often prefer to live broken, out of balance, half dead lives, isolated from God and isolated from one another. We lead very isolated lives. It's getting worse. Jesus arose that we might have eternal life. That we might be fully alive. That we might be fully balanced. That we might be fully engaged. Jesus is our good Samaritan. Jesus is our ideal neighbor. The best message of the parable is that the Good Samaritan is Christ. Jesus is our Good Samaritan. He brings us into balance. He brings healing with his hands. And as much as, as, much as I like to beat you up for not being a very good neighbor, let's to be absolutely crystal clear in this parable, you're not the Levite, and you're not the priest, and you're not the Samaritan either. In this parable, you're the guy that got jumped. You're the guy that got beat up. Satan and his stooges 
have damaged you. Now, I don't propose to know what the depth of the breadth of all of your damage may be. It could be physical damage. It, it could also be mental damage. It could be an intellectual damage, a spiritual damage, or maybe you're emotionally damaged. Maybe like me or all three. Even four intellect. Can't even read it off the page. But you are busted. You are broken. Satan did that. He attacked you, beat you up, left you half dead, laying in a ditch, which is where you would have been had Christ not rescued you. Christ brings his healing hands. He is the good neighbor that we needed. The good Samaritan that we needed. And not only does he come for you, he has come for you. He has healed you. He has, he has paid the price. And then he sends us out. <clears throat> Go find more wobbly tables. Fix them as best as you can. Take all of the tools. Take all of the tools that I have given unto you, that I have shown you, brought you, go for it. Just as we need Jesus, they need Jesus. Just as, as we needed a neighbor, so too do they need a neighbor. In the meantime, maybe we could just stop banging on each other. Maybe we could quit poking each other in the eye and hitting people with the hammers and tripping them and calling them all kinds of ridiculous names and making some of the stupidest sounds that you'll ever hear. Maybe just strive to be a useful table and to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you. In Jesus' name, amen.